Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary friends. Welcome back to another episode of Actors with Issues. As always, I'm your host, Juan Ayala. Thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is an actor of stage and screen. You've seen him on the Emmy and Golden Globe nominated series, The Flight Attendant on HBO Max, and he's currently starring in the Broadway production of one of my favorite recent musicals, Come From Away, Mr. James Soul. James, welcome to Actors with Issues. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Juan, for having me. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so we're going to start with a game called Getting to Know You. And yes, that is a Rodgers and Hammerstein's reference. <laughs> uh, we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock and see how many of these rapid fire questions you can get through, uh, starting with an easy one, coffee or tea? Oh, definitely coffee. Uh, film or television? Oh, that's hard. Let's say TV. Uh, drama or comedy? Comedy. Would you rather play a hero or the villain? Villain. <laughs> Stage acting or screen acting? Oh, that's hard. Uh, because I'm in a Broadway show, I'll say stage acting. Uh, what is the last TV show you binged? Uh, oh my gosh, uh, Nora from Queens. Good job. Uh, if you can be in the revival of any Broadway show, which would you choose? Sweeney Todd. What role? Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a secret talent? Oh gosh. No. Okay. Let me, let me ponder that one. <laughs> and then I'll probably like halfway through our conversation, <laughs> I'll probably, it'll probably pop in my head. Also, I uh, love how you were like round, like 60 seconds. And I, and all that made me do is talk faster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's time. Uh, so last question, describe your worst audition in three words and then no further explanation is needed. Three words painful speechless gripped <laughs> and we'll leave that to the imagination of our listeners they can deduce whatever story they want <laughs> love it uh so james when did this whole journey uh start for you when did you first find acting and performing and when did you decide that it's something you wanted to do for a living Oh, that's such a good question. I haven't thought about uh, that in such a long time. I actually, I remember in seventh grade, I was walking down the hallway and I remember seeing a poster the school was doing or the drama department at the school was doing a production of Our Town. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, it wasn't an audition poster. I think it was just publicizing that, they, that the show was happening soon. And I remember looking at that poster and thinking like, oh, I bet that's fun. I bet that's fun to do mm. or to be a part of. Um, and then it didn't kind of cross my mind for a while. And then I moved middle schools. So I was in eighth grade in a different middle school. And I went to a production of Di <laughs> Dial M for Murder in middle school <laughs> uh -huh. that the middle school drama department was doing. And I remember at the back of the program after the show, I looked and they they were having auditions for Annie coming up. And I was obsessed with Annie when I was a kid, you know, when I was like in first elementary school. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to audition. And I, I did. I auditioned. I remember it was an oddly long audition process, I think because they wanted to cast me, but 
I'm assuming because of my background and ethnicity, they were they weren't sure if it would work, I guess, you know, right. whatever that means for a middle school production of Annie. <laughs> so, you know, so I remember we had like multiple auditions. So they finally did cast me as Rooster and I'm sure I was awful. I don't think there's any video of it around, but I remember loving it so much. I remember the Saturday rehearsals. Um, I remember like, the songs being way too low for me. My voice hadn't changed yet. <laughs> so I was singing like in the soprano key, uh, playing Rooster in the soprano key. Um, but, you know, it was a very sort of classic story of just being bit by by the acting bug. And, and I remember also like, I think the rehearsals were like two months long, mm. <laughs> you know, like after school yeah. and, you know, two months long for, you know, three performances. Right. Um, so it was after school and Saturday rehearsals. And I just remember having so much fun doing all of it. Mm. So that, that's how it all started. <laughs> and like, at one point, was it that, like, did you continue performing like throughout school after that? Yes, I did all throughout high school. Uh, all throughout undergrad. Um, and, you know, I'll be honest, looking back, I think I was pretty fortunate, you know, having teachers who both in high school and in college who were, you know, I guess, for lack of a better word, progressively minded. And so I, I got cast in a lot of things. I played model the tailor in mm -hmm. my junior year production of Fiddler. I played uh, Max in The Sound of Music. Um, you know, I directed a children's play my senior year and um, did a lot of great stuff. And then in college, it was, it was very similar. I, I played Jack in Into the Woods and uh, I played <laughs> what must have been the most interesting production of a chorus line in undergrad. Uh, I played Paul. Mm. So we, we futzed with the ethnicity of that character yeah um so yeah so i had a, a lot of opportunities growing up and very fortunate <laughs> i mean that, that's great because i feel like so many times people of color or of, of of any kind end up stuck in the ensemble regardless of their talent level because people can be narrow-minded and be like well would there be an asian jew in sarsis russia like would that and it's like well it doesn't matter Let's suspend yes. our disbelief. Is he really 60 and the father of five? No. Exactly. Exactly. Is our tenure really? Yeah. And right. also it's high school. Let, let's be right. real. You know, me, and I don't mean that in a diminishing way for the work that, you know, every high school does to put on, you know, their amazing shows. Right. I just mean, you know, ultimately it should all be for the learning experience for right. the students. And I mean, the crew, the musicians, the actors, everybody. And it should be about building those skills of ensembleship and, you know, understanding how to work together as, as a large group and navigating all these different kinds of temperaments and personality types. And that, that's, those are the, those are the true lessons, right? Yeah. I mean, so if, if those are the true lessons, then all that other stuff is inconsequential, yeah. ultimately. And I feel like so much of that still pertains to careers in, in professional settings. It's like, like we're actors and, and, and you know, now it, there's a lot more um, awareness and sensitivity being brought, but 
you know, if <laughs> it, it bugs me a little bit sometimes when it gets like nationality specific, because if I'm only allowed to play Salvadorian characters, I will never work another day in my life because I've never right. seen a Salvadorian character on television or film ever, <laughs> you know? Right. And um, the same with, with my, like my bisexuality, bisexual characters don't really exist in film or TV much. And if they do, they're hypersexualized or asexual. It's like one or the other. And it's like, you know, right. those or, aren't or that or that sexuality becomes the or is the fulcrum of the story, and that's the only right. way we can tell these stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the breakdown yeah. is, you know, John by thirties, yeah, and that's it. There's no, that's it. That's all there no. is. Yeah, and and yeah, that's I so mean, funny. I just did a movie. Uh, I just shot a day on this film, and the lead actor is El Salvadorian. Uh, really? And I believe that figures prominently into the story. I believe that there are flashbacks to to their childhood in El Salvador. Uh, I believe that's correct. Yeah, I'm going to double check that. And then you can just edit all this part out if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is a conversation that, I mean, is just going to be for, forever ongoing. And rightfully so, right? I mean, the 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 whole idea of the, the whole sort of calculus of casting anything and how, you know, I think it's impossible to have any sort of universal rules that will apply to every project forever, for, forever and forward. Um, but to make sure that everybody involved in that process has the conscientiousness and the context of our current times. Yeah. And I think that's maybe those are the challenges we're running into now. I feel like casting has is more um, everything conscious more than ever, mm. but of course there's still a long ways to go. Yes. And we still see remnants of projects and things that are out there that, you know, like that controversy with the, that Netflix show that um, Neil Patrick Harris is starring in. And how it oh had yeah the maid character maid character uh -huh. yeah that still in 2021 you know we still have these tropes that for whatever reason people seem to latch onto and and yeah. still want to include in their stories for no other reason other than familiarity I guess or yeah. habit or tradition or history or whatever and yeah so we still run into these obstacles and challenges yeah it's. Like you said, it's going to be a conversation that's going to just be ongoing for so long, yeah. um, whether it's tearing down certain stereotypes or figuring out where that line is where, you know, and it's just it, 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 the whole casting process is like, does one's nationality have anything to do with the actual story? Like, should you hire a non-Latino to play a Latino role if the character speaks Spanish? Probably not if they don't speak Spanish. You know, like there's like the whole like specific skills. And then there's just like the lived in experience, like one's sexuality should have nothing to, in my, in my opinion, there should not have much to do with the role. It's like, we only get upset, at least in the LGBTQ plus community, when it's a bad performance by a straight actor in a queer role. It's like, well, who let that happen? You know, yeah. like James Corden, I'm not, you know, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when that's the case, it's like, well, that's just like silly and, and, and bad and like bordering offensive. But then when it's a good performance, it's like, well, great. Good for them. Sure. It would have been nice if that opportunity went to a queer actor and they would have gotten all that recognition. But, you know, it's again, it's always like, what if, what if would we know? You and know? It's, 
also, I've also been thinking a lot about too the placement in a story. Like, is it that person's story, or is that person's it just meant to be a device and in the background and an ensemble person or a featured person right. who doesn't get uh, the advantage of a whole story arc? And so, like, who gets who gets typically or traditionally cast in those those kinds of roles? Meaning, who get, who gets the who gets the story arc? And then who is just a sort of vehicle in the story arc, you know, right. or a component of that much larger story arc for that one person. Yeah. And so that stuff too, you know, the kinds of roles that become available. And so meaning that, you know, if the story becomes about a, a housekeeper or a maid, I guess, if, if that's the nine episode arc, that's one kind of, that's a one sp specific situation, right? Mm -hmm. That needs to be sort of cast and cared for in a certain way. Then there's a circumstance where like that maid character has three episodes and just kind of drops in and out, right? And doesn't get the advantage of actual, of a full fleshed out story. Right. And so that, those kinds of projects need to be examined as well in a specific kind of way. Yeah. Um, looking back at your career so far, like, you know, the whole 2020 hindsight, of course, uh, what's something that you know now that you wish you had learned earlier on in your career? Oh, gosh. I, I think that, you know, for so much of my, for so much of the earlier part of my career, I felt very unwelcomed. And because of that, I think I internalized a lot of that to then reflect my own opinions about my own abilities and mm. skill level. And I'll tell you, that's not fun. <clears throat> and I guess if there is something I could tell myself, you know, if I could build a time machine and go back, is, or rather maybe it's, try to help myself unwind that stuff. Meaning mm -hmm. I, I, I look at my body of work in the last four or five years, and I do think there's a, a certain amount of variety, both in the, the various mediums that the work happens, but also the kinds of roles, the things that I, the choices and behaviors that I get to, to do. And I think it, it I trust actually that I'm, I'm, I'm fairly skilled. <laughs> and that's not a belief that I had mm -hmm. early on. You know, there, there was a lot of second guessing. There was a lot of self-doubt, you know, and there's still a fair amount of that now. But I, I think with age and with working, you learn or one learns to navigate and manage all those things and i think it was so consumptive earlier on in my career mm. and and i i do think a lot of it was external external stuff that 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 i then internalized and you know so if you have a sort of deficit in terms of what you think about your own abilities then of course auditioning is going to be a challenge <laughs> even working is going to be a challenge maybe even daily life becomes a challenge so, you know, it permeates and it affects so much. And, you know, I guess luckily with age, I've released a lot of that. 
which has been nice. So now I have much more freedom to just dive into the work rather than have the judge and the editor kind of contributing way too much. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, thankfully in recent years, like you're sort of in the middle of when the industry is taking this shift. And, you know, like I feel heartbroken for the actors of color who are like in their 60s and 70s and are looking at this change and they're like, wow, I wish I had that 40 years ago. And, you know, like thankfully it's a time where in a show like Come From Away where the the actual ethnicity of some of these characters were Caucasian and they're just like, well, it doesn't matter. We're going to, you know, we're, they're, we're also not all from a lot of, it's what I love about the show. I, I haven't seen it in person. I did watch the Apple TV plus filming, which was, I was bawling my eyes out several times. Beautiful, right? I mean, it's so well made. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I love that you, what you just said about, you know, the, the current cultural conversations we're having now, I think are informing the kind of things that get produced and made and how those things are cast. And it wasn't like that when I graduated from acting school in 2005 and it was not, we, we didn't even have the vocabulary that we have now. We didn't have the beginning. We didn't even have the beginnings of the vocabulary that we have now. Actually, you know what? I take that back. We had vocabulary. We had some language around it because I remember breakdowns at the time would always say things like we're looking to cast a diverse, you know, right. uh, from a diverse array, diverse pool of actors. And so agents should submit everybody. And of course, you'd see that project a year later after it's completed and, you know, the cast is fairly uniform and homogenous. So we had some language, but there was not this robust kind of conversation that we're having now. Mm. And there are these moments where I think, oh my gosh, I'm just happy I didn't quit. I'm happy that I got Mm. to, that that I stuck it out that, you know, through all the day jobs and through all the terrible auditions and through all the deficits of of self self-confidence and I, I am so happy that I I found a way and this is not by any means arrogance it's more just like just sheer gratitude you know that mm. I, I found a way to stuck it stick it out and you know I, I've I've landed here honestly a place that I didn't really anticipate. And so, so much of it is a wonderful, happy, unexpected surprise. Mm. And, you know, I remember I have these key moments within the last, I would say four or five years, anecdotal evidence, when I started to feel some kind of shift. Like I remember I got called in at the, the Guthrie was doing a production of King Lear, mm. I think maybe like five years ago. And I got called in for Edmund. <laughs> to audition for Edmund. And I remember thinking like, that's weird. Meaning the only Shakespeare roles prior to that that I'd ever been called in for were like the best friend were Horatio, Benvolio, mm-hmm. or if they're doing a production of Tempest, um, Ariel, you know, the exotic, right. <laughs> the exotic oh, Ariel, right? <laughs> yeah. So Edmund was, I was like, wow, that's, that's new. That's, that's a new thing. Mm. And so I, you know, I have these like little signpost memories where I, I think back on where I, I slowly started to feel some kind of shift happening. And again, it's all anecdotal. I don't know if it's, if it was something that was sweeping across, you know, the, the casting stratosphere, mm. but 
I do re recall clocking those slight shifts for myself. Um, just yesterday, I got in um, a self-tape request for the Fiero understudy for the Wicked Tour. And in my head, I was like, has there been a Latino that's played Fiero ever? Oh my gosh. And I was like shocked. I was like, I, cause I never, that's never been a role that's been in my head. Cause I'm like, Norbert Leo Butts, you've got Nick Adams, you've got, you know, yeah. uh, uh, Aaron Tveit. And I'm like, the roles that they play, I'm, I've never pictured myself in those roles. So I'm just yeah. like, okay, we're getting there. Baby steps, you know, at least I got the audition. Wow. At least they're like, maybe. Um, Lord knows if I get it, but you know, it's just like one of those things that it's like conscious in my head. I'm like, wow, like, okay, they're making, because I think, wasn't it just like maybe right before the pandemic or, or even more recently that there was like the first black Glinda and everyone's like, why haven't there been alphabets of color? There's yeah. like Mexican productions and there's Korean productions. Like if it works yeah. in that context, why can't it work in English? Yeah. And it's just for a completely made up world. She's a green that, witch. What does the yes, color under the has, green makeup matter? <laughs> yeah, it has all kinds of different kinds of people in it. Yeah. Flying monkeys, uh, for God's sake. We can suspend yeah. our disbelief a little bit. Yes. You can suspend your disbelief for flying monkeys. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am in 100% agree with you. I don't think people come to musicals to, to see historical accuracy or... I don't I don't sit and watch a production of She Loves Me and think, oh, that this Budapest in 1930s better be exactly <laughs> historically correct or I'm leaving. Right. You know, or watch Music Man and think, well, this this where does where's Music Man set? Iowa. Right. This exactly. this better be exactly the period details or I'm yeah. leaving. I don't hear no Iowan one, accents. I'm out like, you know, yeah, one no thinks one that. Does that. <laughs> yeah, no one thinks that. Right. And the people that are searching for that kind of thing they have no business <laughs> right i'm like gosh they have must no be business, fun at parties. They have no business loving musicals a genre <laughs> where the characters break out into song <laughs> historical accuracy should be meant should be left for i guess those projects that are specific to the naturalism of the story i don't know but musicals right. aren't naturalistic musicals Right. are not naturalistic by definition right. we can leave <laughs> that accuracy I, up to the plays <laughs> you know like yeah you and i look into each other's eyes and we break out into song like right. that's that's what a musical is and that is not naturalism and and that's wonderful that it's not naturalism so if if that's not naturalism if that's not naturalistic then i think design choices casting choices costume mm. choices sound design choices all of that is up for grabs and should be. Hey, everyone. If you're enjoying today's episode so far, please do us a big favor and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you're listening and leave us a rating and review. You can also head over to Instagram and give us a follow at Actors With Issues. Believe me, reviews, ratings, and follows really help us out and get our show out there to help more people, actors and artists who are looking for advice from professional working actors. Be sure to also share the podcast with any of your friends and family that you think would enjoy the show. As always, thank you for all of your support. Now, let's get back to the show.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I always, you know, send out this list of questions for folks just to get sort of an insight on their own experiences. And when I'd asked about a big misconception that you experience in the industry, you mentioned that the misconception was that it's a true meritocracy. So what can you share about that? Because I'm interested. I think that connects really to the larger challenges of living in America and maybe just even being a human being. I think that, you know, we're just all born with certain kinds of privileges. And I, I guess I shouldn't say we, we're all born, but, but you know, there are certain things in our lives that I guess that we had no control over and we're just kind of granted, given. And I think because of those things, a lot of people can have advantages in life in general, and certainly in, in show business. And, you know, if all things were truly equal, maybe part of the conversation that you and I have been having so far wouldn't even exist, you know, mm. if, if things were a true meritocracy, right. um, you know, we, maybe we wouldn't be having conversations around, you know, casting challenges and casting difficulties. And um, I, I guess, when I typed that response or when I sent that response to you, I guess I was thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be talented and skilled? Who has the opportunities to really refine and, and, and sharpen those talents and skills? Mm -hmm. And who doesn't have those opportunities sort of historically, right? Or even systemically. And, you know, the people that get the opportunities for schools that have the resources to be able to do a school production of Annie or Fiddler on the Roof, all the way through this, those uh, artists who have the opportunity to go to a program or a conservatory where they can, you know, be in acting classes, be surrounded by their peers, be surrounded by great teachers, all the way through those actors who have the opportunities to be cast a lot in stuff. Mm -hmm. So then you become a better actor by doing. So every step of the way, there are people that have advantages to those things and that there are people that don't. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a sort of, not, I don't know if it's a realization, but that's just something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Mm. I mean, you know, and I think it all does connect to the larger conversation or rather the yeah. previous part of the conversation that you and I have been having. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of being in this show, and this is going to sound so cheesy, so forgive me, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there is a very distinct message that this show has, a very distinct thesis that this show has. And it was the first thing that Chris Ashley and Danny Goldstein, uh, the associate director, shared with me on the first day of rehearsal 
you know, the thesis of the show or what the show is about is it's about showing people grace and kindness and generosity, even when it's really hard to do so. And I think as I've gotten older (laughs) and more sensitive to these kinds of things, I believe in that. And every day I try and fail to embody that idea, that message of this show. You know, I think as a hardened New Yorker, it's a challenge (laughs) to show grace to other people, complete strangers, especially, you know, as you're having a, as you're trying to navigate the subway, you know, trying to get to some place, try to be there on time. And, you know, all these people are standing in your way. Um, But I think connected to that, I've been thinking about, well, how do I not just be the actor that does this show once a night and lives out or tries to live out this moment of, or this idea of grace in a two hour fake environment? How do I do that in my own real life? Mm. And what are all the ways that I can try to do that? And I think it's not coincidental that then I've been having these conversations around you know, meritocracy, who has access to things and who doesn't have access to things, who has access to things to make themselves better humans, who doesn't have access to those things to make themselves better humans, who has access to things that help them make them, to help make them better actors and who doesn't have access to those things. Yeah, it's interesting that it is (laughs) not coincidentally somehow connected back to the show and, and just wanting to be sort of holistic about it all rather than like I said, an actor who gets to be nice for two hours a day and then the rest of my life, I'm just an asshole, you know, <laughs> not to not be that. Right. And, and I mean, well, you're it, it, <laughs> like flabbergasted right now. Um, it just really does relate back to what we were talking about before about this and the conversation that's been had for the last year and a half, especially it's like the systemic, the racism that exists, the reason that we've always seen these all or mainly or all white casts and shows that could be flexible is because of opportunity who gets to it's like it's expensive being an actor you know not everyone can afford to be an actor not everyone can pay for actors access and casting networks and all of these other sites and yeah and live in the either new york or los angeles you know the places where you know they're typically or traditionally the the highest concentration of jobs or access to jobs right through audition to live in these two expensive ass cities. It really all stems back to the conversation that's been had during the Black Lives Matter movement and systemic racism and all of that, like real everything from as far as entertainment, like that's really the reality of it. And only now that in the last four or five years that people are getting vocal when it comes to um, the award shows and things like that, like why do you have no nominees of color and sure we don't do yeah. it for the awards we think okay well who's greenlighting projects who like doesn't get the show of the the pilot about an immigrant family you know like it sucks to say but a show like kim's convenience which i love would not exist in the u.s because there's no producer or network head who gets it who gets that yeah. story enough to like green light it for as long as that show ran and, and you're so right about it's not about the awards, but what I do think is important is amplification. Mm-hmm. And so amplification as it re- 
as it connects to representation, meaning that I think when when there are, and I, I do believe this is true for young people, like when young people, so like I have two nieces and a nephew, I think that when they can see something on a TV screen or even better on a giant movie screen or on a stage, when they can see something of themselves there in, in that form, I think that does have value. Yeah. I think that, and I think it's the amplification, like it's that something about that giant movie screen, knowing that all of these resources were pooled into this particular project. And that's, you know, a bunch of these people took such great care in crafting this story and this narrative. Mm -hmm. And what then you have is this giant movie where there's an Asian or Asian American lead and, and or, you know, uh, Asian American male romantic lead or, or whatever it is. Right. And then to see that and to be in the audience for that, I think that does something psychological to, mm -hmm. to a particularly young person. I think it is interesting that my nieces and my nephew's generation, I don't think they have the hangups that I have or have had. I think they're used to seeing a, a great deal of color on their screens. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, why shouldn't there be uh, an Asian American superhero or uh, a Latinx hero? Or it doesn't even become a question. Do you know right. what I mean? And, and so it's that amplification of that representation that I think becomes such a huge, valuable tool. And it's necessary and so important. And I say all this because I used to think that it's just entertainment or it's just, you know, it's just a movie or it's just a whatever. I, I have been thinking a lot. Like I watched, I went to a screening of The Eternals mm. and I did have this moment while watching that film thinking, and also Shang-Chi. I was like, I wonder if I would be different if I had seen this movie as an eight-year-old or a 16-year-old or even a 24-year-old. Like, I wonder if I would have the same internalized beliefs and challenges that I think I've had to grapple with a, a good portion of my life. And I don't know the answer to that question, obviously. But I'm I'm inclined to believe that something would have been different. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like I'm I'm very thankful that like my 13-year-old nephew is never gonna wonder what it's like to not be represented because he grew up with movies like Coco about yeah. a kid who like, you yeah. know, fights for his family and loves music yeah. and and movies like in the heights about the immigrant experience and all of that you know like yes gonna be in the middle of all of that and he's never gonna wonder that thank god because it's it's exhausting and it really takes a toll on you like i grew up never thinking i'd i didn't decide to be an actor until i was signing up for like registering for college because i was really that doubtful despite how much i loved it i was yeah. like when am i what the hell am i gonna be in like i never thought like when are they gonna have a lot in fan of the opera hopefully it's me one day but yeah, has yet happened. <laughs> you know, it. like that that sort of milestone hasn't been hit. It's um, and those two projects that you just named, you know, for all the relative sort of complaints uh, and, and understandable complaints that, yeah. like, say, in the heights might have received. Yeah, the what ultimately, you know, sort of all of it together, meaning not discounting the the challenges and the controversies that mm -hmm. the rightful controversies again especially within the heights 
it is amazing to me that both of those projects are beautiful. Like mm-hmm. they're just beautifully crafted works of art. And you can see and feel the resources, both practical and creative mm-hmm. that were infused into those pro- both those projects, the amount of time and the amount of money and the amount of uh, genius creativity that was infused. And, and so then you ultimately end up with these two films that are just gorgeous, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, gorgeous. The reason I think that they're so beautifully crafted is because everyone involved was like, we might not get a chance to do something like this ever again. So we got to make a count. You, oh, they know we yeah. can't half-ass this. Yeah. Even with everything that was put in, there was still like some backlash and everything has, every movie has its faults and all of that. And I think that that sure. the complaints of a lack of more, um, because with, within the Latinx community, it is such a broad palette of, sure. of, of people. You know, there yeah. are European Latinos, there are black Latinos, there are Asian Latinos, there are, there's everybody from all over. So it's like to not have that represented in the movie is a valid complaint. Sure. Um, so when that was happening, I'm like, great, let's hope we get another chance to do it with the success that this one had. And we can write that wrong. Start to branch out and, and then start to get more specific and more nuanced yeah. and more detailed mm-hmm. in all of that. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's what I mean about amplification. Like, because yeah. those two pick particular films, both Coco and In the Heights, are, are just so beautifully crafted. Again, and I say all that with respect to all of the specific right. um, challenges and, and opinions that people had about the film. Knowing that all of these resources were po- pooled together to craft those films, yeah. I think means a lot and has and has a lot of value and I think is exactly right, is exactly what should have happened. So I don't want to keep you for too, too long, um, but so we're just going to go into our last segment. It's um, there's no time, so no worry about rapid fire. <laughs> um, right. This is some open ended questions uh, in a game called Now That We Know You, since we've gotten a chat for the last uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, so first, uh, fill in the blank. If I weren't working in the arts, I'd be. Oh my gosh, I don't know. Oh my gosh, Juan, I don't know if I have an answer to this question. What would I do? My if I wanted, is, I'd arts. be lost. Yeah, I guess so. I wouldn't be doing anything. I, I you know what? Know. Honestly, maybe I would be doing what I sort of. If I weren't in the arts, then that means I would have taken the path a much sort of more conventional path, a safer path, safer from relative to my own life in undergrad. So that means I would be working at a nine to five job, I guess. <laughs> Who would you trade places with for one day? Meryl Streep. Good choice. <laughs> would you rather star in a hit sitcom for 100 episodes or a three-part film franchise? I think a sitcom. 100 episodes get that syndication money right <laughs> yeah get the syndication money the uh and a sitcom with a studio audience so you have a regular work schedule <laughs> right 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 <laughs> Monday through Friday <laughs> uh what was your biggest takeaway from the pandemic my morning pages <laughs> <laughs> I I started morning pages again during pandemic and it's been such a gift 
this ritual that I have set aside for myself. I am a little bit flexible with mourning, <laughs> like when <laughs> I actually do that. I think it's helped a lot, actually. I think it certainly helped a lot in the sort of processing of the pandemic. And I think it continues to help a lot. And uh, lastly, in 10 words or less, what advice would you give to a young actor? Start with being a reader for casting directors. I think that's eight words. So that would be my practical piece of advice. Start mm -hmm. by being a reader for casting directors. If you don't have an agent. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so cliche, but I'm going to do it. Work hard, but know you are enough. James, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, for being here with us on Actors with Issues. Um, if folks want to give you a follow on Instagram, where can they find you? At James Soul. J-A-M-E-S-S-E-O-L. And you all can follow us on Instagram, Actors with Issues. Give me a follow at Juan Ayala Official. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening and catch new episodes every Monday. I'm Juan Ayala. That's James Soul. This is Actors with Issues. And we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.